pray to him this morning. Let us pray. Father, first we give thanks to you for being the great and mighty God who is worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. Lord, we thank you this morning for just really the beginning of all things that come from you. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. Lord, we live in a world that hates us. We live in a world that hates believers. We live in a world that hates Christianity and what it stands for. And Lord, you told us that the world will hate us because it hated you first. We realize, Lord, that if the world does not really hate us, then we're not really feeling the sting of the hostility towards you that the world has. And if that's the case, Lord God, it is because we're not really living for you that much. Lord, Christ in us causes the world to hate us. Christ in us cause, causes the world to despise us and also to despise our Christ. Lord, also, you told us in your word that the very hairs on our head are numbered. So while the world may hate us, we have nothing to fear. We have no need to compromise. We have no need to bow down to the whims of the world. Because, Lord, we know that you are always with us. We know, Lord, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. So, Father, I pray this morning that you strengthen us as a church, strengthen our members individually, and strengthen us as a, as a church corporately. Lord, help us to be bold in our Christian witness. Help us, Lord, to be able to articulate the gospel truth when it is being trampled upon among our co-workers, among our family members, among our friends. Help us, Lord, to stand up for your truth and to not be ashamed and not be afraid of doing so. Lord, help us as a church to continue to be a beacon and a light in this city of Anniston. Help us as a church to not compromise. Help us as a church to continue to proclaim the truth and continue to stand on the truth. Help me as a pastor to continue to do that. Lord, we will not bow the knee, not for one moment, to the world, to the things of this world, because, Lord, they mean nothing. They lead to destruction. They lead to despair. And, Lord, we pray for other churches in our city that are preaching the false gospel, that are, are promoting false gospels, Lord, that you may bring them to repentance. Lord, that you may shame those pastors into repenting of their sins of promoting a false gospel. And Lord, we pray that you may protect their parishioners, those who attend those churches, from the spiritual abuse that comes with false teaching. And that, Lord, you may snatch them out of that fire 
of false teaching and bring them into a church that is truly biblical and that is truly preaching the biblical gospel. We pray, Lord, against those churches this morning. And, Lord, we thank you for the churches that, that uh, I know of, men who are solidly leaving their churches, men who are proclaiming a true gospel. Lord, we thank you for Grace Fellowship and Anderson Bible and Redeemer and Christian Fellowship and Mountain View and First Baptist Lionville and Iron City Baptist and Southside Baptist and uh, Talladega. But we also thank you for brothers uh, in other areas of the county, uh, like Steve Mays up the road in Jacksonville at Hope Presbyterian Church, uh, brothers uh, Gobbler J. Yeager and Josephus Brown in Liberia, who, who we've uh, housed as missionaries uh, in the last few years, my brother Sylvester over in Nigeria. Lord, we pray for solid churches everywhere, Lord, that you continue to strengthen all of us to be faithful to the gospel, to be faithful to preaching your truth, to be faithful in shepherding the flock of God. Lord, when many churches and many pastors are, are caving and giving in, strengthen that which remains. It reminds me, Lord, of in First Kings, as I was doing my reading over the weekend, where the prophet Elijah was lamenting that uh, everyone has turned away from worshiping Yahweh, but Lord, you told him that there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And Lord, that got me to thinking that there's always a faithful remnant. There's always a group of faithful Christians, faithful people who have not bowed the knee to the Baals of our culture, who have not bowed our knees to the idolatries and the idolatrous philosophies and worldviews of our culture. And Lord, we can count ourselves among them, those of us in here in the living church. We're praying, Lord, for the other millions, perhaps, of Christians who have not bowed the knee, that you continue to strengthen us, Lord, and multiply our numbers, and that we will serve the one true and living God who is blessed forever. And Lord, as we get ready to ponder this text this morning, I pray that, Lord, you will illumine your truth to us for your glory. I pray, Lord, that you will explode our faith, our joy, and our love for you and love for the saints and our love for Jesus Christ and what he has done for us in redeeming us and translating us from the kingdom of darkness into your marvelous light. Lord, bless your word this morning as it is preached. And as it is heard, may you be pleased. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let us turn to Ephesians, the second chapter. We're still in, but God. Second part of this sermon. Our focus is going to be verses five. The second half of verse 5 through verse 7.
And I just put, but God part two. As I did last week, I'm going to get at the first verse and work back through the text again to get the uh, full context of this passage. And it reads as follows. And you, and remember again, as a, just a reminder, the you are the saints. Going back to the very first verse of this book. So he's speaking to believers. He says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us lie together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. As we ponder this text again, as I said, I pray that God illumines his truth to us for his glory. Our big idea is that in saving us, God makes us alive with Christ. He raises us up and seats us together in Christ in order to display his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. So that is our our big idea and, and we're going to work our principles from that. So in saving us, God makes us alive. He raises us up. He seats us together in order to display his grace. Looking at the text again, this is a uh, slightly different translation, but it is uh, the Greek translation. It says, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus that in ages to come we might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. A couple observations about that text is that you know these three realities being made alive being raised up and being seated together with Christ these are an answer to Paul's prayer back as we read in the first chapter, verses 17 and 18. Because Paul prayed in this prayer, if you go back to Ephesians 1, that prayer that he prayed, he says here in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Father, I'm sorry, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes 
of your heart enlightened. So how is this an answer to God to this prayer? When we are made alive in God, when we go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, we now know God. The unregenerate man does not know God. The person who is not saved doesn't know God. They may know things about God. They may tell you, I talk to God every day, but they're not known by God. They don't truly know God. So this text here this morning is an answer to that prayer. When we are made alive, we know God. And also when we are made alive, the eyes of our hearts are open. What are the eyes of our heart open to? The truth of the gospel. So this that Paul writes that we see here in this second chapter is an answer to that prayer for the spirit of wisdom and a revelation of the knowledge of God and having the eyes of their hearts open. That only happens when God makes us alive. That can't happen when we are spiritually dead. Man does not, we talked about this last week, man does not have the ability to know God except God gives him that ability. Now, as we talked about with the book of Ephesians, the focus is our identity in Christ, who we are in Christ and how we shall live in light of that. We don't want to lose that focus as we go through the sermons. When Paul talks about what we have in Christ, he regularly uses uh, verbs in Greek, Greek rather, which have a pre prefix meaning together with. And we find three of them here again in verses five and six. And I read it to you again. You can probably hear it. First of all, he made us alive together with Christ and we were raised up with him. Excuse me. And seated us with him in the heavenly realms of Christ Jesus. So that, that with him means together with him in the Greek. So all of this is showing our identity in Christ. God made us alive together with Christ. God raised us together with Christ. And God seated us together with Christ. In the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ. And I pointed out, you know, back when we first started preaching this book, back in the very first verse, the fact that we are in Christ. Being in Christ, people, sums up all that Christians have. And that we are co-heirs with Christ. Paul talks about this in Romans 8 and 17. We are co-heirs with Christ. Christ as his people we are in Christ and I was thinking about this I was ruminating over this as I was brushing my teeth this morning this is what I was thinking about no one can take that away from us no situation can take that from us no amount of despair can take that away from us no amount of persecution can take away that from us. When we are in Christ, guess what? We're in Christ. That identity can never be taken from us. 
Even the devil himself can't take that from you. First of all, the devil can't take anything from you. But also, our identity as believers is firmly planted in Christ. And no one can take that away. That is why we place our identity in him and not in the things of this world. It has to be in Christ. We have to know that it is in Christ. We have to know that we are in Christ, that we hope in Christ. Again, going back to the 14th verse of chapter 1 of Ephesians. Chapter 13, I'm sorry, verse 13. Just a reminder. Paul says, in him, meaning in Christ, in him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Who guarantees our inheritance? The Holy Spirit does. Who gives us his spirit? God the Father does when we are saved. Who can take the Holy Spirit away from us? No one. So our identity is firmly planted in Christ. So when we're looking at our passage today, we see made us alive together with Christ. We're joined with Christ. These together withs help us to see that our inheritance in Christ is so deep and wonderful. It is so deep and so wonderful. And as believers, we have to believe that it is actual. This is not some fantasy. This is real. This is not something that happens in the sweet by and by. No, right now you are in Christ. Right now you are together with Christ. It doesn't matter how you feel. You know, we live in a feelings-based culture. Everything is about how you feel or how someone made you feel. This is not about feelings. This is reality. This is fact. This is truth. You are together with Christ, Christian. And what this means, that whatever is true of Jesus is true of us. Whatever is true of our king is true of us. Why? Because we have this inheritance together with him. Christ is our representative king. He represents us. Remember, he's our advocate. Paul says we have one advocate. There's one mediator, advocate, same thing between God and man. And it is the man, Jesus Christ. Christ is our representative before God. He represents all believers. As king. He brings us before God. As our representative. He pleads our righteousness before God as our advocate. When we sin, as first John says, when we sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And what does Christ do? He brings us before God as our representative. He is alive. He has been raised. And because he is alive and he's been raised. Guess what? We are alive and we have been raised. And we have been raised together with Christ. He is seated in the heavenly realms. 
and we are seated with him. And that's what we see in this passage this morning. That's my introduction. <laughs> we must know our identity in Christ. Before we even move forward, we've been preaching on the last few weeks in this sermon. We have to know as believers that we are in Christ. And that is a glorious and precious reality. Amen. First principle. God made us alive with Christ. We get verse 5b. Paul says. Of course he begins with even when we were dead in trespasses. Okay. This goes back to last week. This is when God started loving us when we were dead. God did not wait until we were lovable. He loved us even when we were dead in trespasses and sins. That's when he did that. The requirement for being saved is that we must first be dead. That's the requirement. If you think that you're alive, you can never be saved. You must know that you're spiritually dead, that you're dead in your sins. You have to be dead to every attempt to justify yourself before God. People that try to justify themselves before God who are unsaved, guess what? They will never be saved because they don't think they need it. They think that they are alive when they're actually dead. People that don't see that they need a Savior, guess what? They're going to remain in their sins. They're going to always be dead because they don't think they need a Savior. Why? Because they're busy trying to save themselves. We talk about that all the time. But we're not going to belabor that. So our first book says being made alive in Christ. Look at the text again. When we were dead in our trespasses. Okay. Go back to the first two words of verse 4. But God. What was the first thing God did? Made us alive together with Christ. This is what God did to those who were dead in sin. He shared in our death so that we could share in his resurrected life. The old man is crucified. We are now a new creation in Christ Jesus. That is what it, that is what it means to be made alive. We're new creations in Christ Jesus with the old things passing away and all things becoming new. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, behold means like wonder of wonders. All things have become new. That is what happens when we're made alive. We become a new creation. We are, that is the greatest makeover ever. There's a real before and after in the Christian life. That before is that you were dead. That you were totally hopeless. Jesus was raised from the dead. 
And believers have been quickened to spiritual life through Christ because he was raised from the dead. We are now truly alive with Christ. God made us alive. And then Paul interjects something in here. By grace you have been saved. My Bible has that bracketed with dashes. Some may have uh, parentheses. There's a reason why the interjection is there. So, you know, Paul is compelled to add that this is the work of God's grace. What, what is the work of God's grace? That he made us alive. It, it, it in no way involved man's merit or man's work. So look at it. Made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. It is God who made us alive. It was by his grace. Our salvation. Our rescue from spiritual death. Is God's work done for the undeserving. It is totally by the grace of God that we're made alive. John Piper answered the question. Why did Paul put this here? He says, when someone is made alive who was dead in trespasses, grace is what is at work. Grace is a response to the fact that we don't deserve to be saved. We don't have the ability to be saved because we were dead. And that is so true. Grace is a response to the fact, Piper said, that we don't deserve to be saved. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve salvation. We're rebels. Sinners are rebels against God. Sinners are under the wrath of God. Children of disobedience. Sons of disobedience. We in our sinful state do not deserve salvation. No one deserves salvation. Why? Because no one is righteous. A man must first see that he is not special. As Dr. Menace used to always tell his students at Faith Christian School, you're not special. You think you are. You're not special. He wasn't saying it in a mean way. He explained to them what he meant. Because many of us think that we're so special that somehow we're so deserving of everything that God gives us. Everything that God has for us. None of us are friends. That's what makes grace, grace. If we deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. It could, it could be something that we could earn. It would be something that we could do ourselves. But that is not grace. Paul's saying, by grace you have been saved. Because it is God who made us alive. Grant Osborne said this in his commentary. He says, salvation cannot be achieved by human effort. There's no way sinful human beings can ever earn or produce salvation. God's mercy and his grace are very close in meaning. Mercy is that divine attribute that leads to grace, that undeserved favor that leads God to save us. He said, Paul's presentation of salvation can be labeled a gospel of grace. It is centered on the free gift of salvation that is not based on any human merit or worth, but is entirely result, the result of God's love and mercy. 
Friends, this is part of the gospel message that we have to get right. That our salvation totally depends on God, not on us. We cannot save ourselves. We talk about it all the time. That is what people are trying to do now. They're trying to save themselves through drugs, through medications, through sex, through fame, through fortune, through money, through worldly acclaim, through alcohol abuse, through mutilating their bodies. They're trying to save themselves from the misery of their sin. And what is it leading to? More despair, more hurt, more misery, more depression. I was listening to a report over the weekend about the state of our nation regarding mental health. We live in the most prosperous country in the world. The richest country in the world, the wealthiest country in the world. You got, you got people pouring through our southern border to come to this great nation illegally. Why? Because there's something great about America that the world sees. You have people immigrating here all the time. I guarantee you this. You don't have as many millions of people leaving this country as you do coming to this country. Why? Because there's something great about this nation. But despite the greatness of this nation, we have over 60 million people in our nation taking antidepressants. 60 million on psychotropic drugs. And I'm not talking about diagnosed um, depression but we have a lot of people in our nation who are in despair not all of them but a lot of them are they're in despair and many of them are in despair because they've rejected God they've accepted the lies of the world and it's not working for them do you not know friend that sin brings misery that unrepentant sin brings misery that doesn't mean that Christians can't struggle with depression. That's not true. We can because we live in the fallen world. But also we have hope. Those in the world, guess what? They don't have hope. They look for their salvation in that pill. They look for their redemption in that pill. They look for their happiness and their joy in those pills and those drugs. But yet we have so many people on those drugs. But yet people are still walking around what? In despair. What does that tell us? Salvation can't be found in those things. Do they help? Perhaps. I don't know. I don't take them. Perhaps they do help. But the bigger point I'm making is this. You have people walking around looking for salvation in that. Just like they do in the alcohol bottle. Or in a glass of wine. Or in some type of marijuana. Why do a lot of people do those things? To escape. Man, I had a hard week's work, man. I, I deserve to knock back a few. 
I deserve to go into the beer cooler in the local map call and come out with a 12-pack. I had a hard week of work. I deserve it. I deserve to smoke this weed to calm my nerves. Why? Because they're looking for a savior. But that is not what God designed us for. Salvation cannot be done by human effort. It can't be done by anything. Look, let me tell you something. Anything that man does is going to cause chaos. Anything that man does, anything that man can cause, I don't care what it is, it's going to cause chaos. And that's what we see in our nation. Look at a lot of these cities that have problems with the homeless. A lot of those homeless are on drugs. You know, we had over 60,000 overdoses, no, 40,000 overdoses last year. 40,000. Overdoses. 40,000 drug overdose deaths last year. In the most prosperous country in the world. God bless America, land that I love. And we got 40,000 people down a drug overdose. Why? They're looking for a savior. They're looking for something or someone to save them out of their sinful misery. but they're looking in all the wrong places. We can't save ourselves, people. This is what you're seeing. As I always say, we have to see all this through a biblical lens. You have people trying to save themselves. That's what they're trying to do. They're looking for a savior. They're looking for someone to rescue them. They're looking for someone to bring them out. They're looking for someone to assuage their guilty conscience. They are looking. They are searching. And it's like a dog chasing out this tail. Have you ever seen a dog catch his tail before? No, they just go in that circle, just chasing their tail. <laughs> and that's what it is for a person who is looking for a savior in the world. You're chasing your tail. You're on the treadmill. You're running fast but going nowhere. Salvation cannot be achieved by human effort, by human means, by human inventions, no matter what it is. It's not going to be found in the pill. It's not going to be found in an illegal drug. It's not going to be found in any type of surgery. It's only going to be found in God. It is God who does what? But God made us alive together with Christ. It is only God who can do it. And that is our message to the world. This also means that believers, we've been saved in the past by an agent outside of us. And that is God. God's the one who saves us. And we have abiding results. What is that result? That we are with Christ. This is the doctrine of eternal security that we are with Christ. We're made alive together with Christ. Christ keeps us secure. 
Like the song we sang this morning, He will hold me fast. Fast means he has his grip on us. Christ is not going to let us go. And why not? Because he loves us so. He's going to keep us secure in him. Now, Paul says, by grace, we have been saved. What is saved? Saved is, is, is a word which describes the rescuing from death to life. What is God saving us from? He's saving us from death. He's saving us from spiritual death. That's what he's doing. It is a shorthand for all that Paul has been talking about in this letter so far. It also has to do with being saved from the wrath or judgment of God. When a person is saved, we're saved from God. We're saved from God, but we're also saved for God. We're saved from God, uh, meaning, again, being saved from his wrath, from the wrath of judgment. But we're being saved for God, for his glory, and to worship him. Paul does not say that we have saved ourselves. He says, by grace, you have been saved. That is in the passive tense. This was done to Christians by God. <coughs> God's grace. Think about this. God's grace did not make it possible for us to save ourselves. Rather, God in his grace achieved our salvation. On our behalf in Christ. God achieved our salvation. And what is the application with this principle? Because we're saved by grace from God's wrath and judgment, we are free to live holy lives without fear. We're free to live holy lives without fear. And the current experience that we have as Christians is to live godly lives because we live knowing that our salvation is secure and it is guaranteed. Because it comes from God. I read that again. Because we're saved by grace. From God's wrath and judgment. We're free to live holy lives without fear. We can live freely because we know that we're saved by grace. And we're saved from God's wrath. We don't live in fear as believers. Our next principle here. Is God raised us up in Christ. So he continues here. In verse 6. And raised us up together with him. This means that we partook of Christ's resurrection life. When Christ was raised physically, guess what? We were raised together spiritually. Remember, if there was no resurrection of Christ we will not be able to be resurrected at all, period. And we will not be able to be resurrected spiritually. We've already been raised with Christ. We were buried with him in baptism. Paul talks about this in Colossians 2 and 12. Paul says we were buried with him in baptism. In which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God 
who raised him from the dead. So we were buried. Baptism is a is a symbol of that. Being dead in Christ and then being raised. That's what baptism symbolizes. Now there's some different analogies that come with um, our redemption. Analogies are, you know, two different terms are either contradict each other or are the same with each other. In the Christian life, the crucifixion, the death, the resurrection, and the enthronement of Christ are all things that are analogous to the Christian life. In other words, we share Christ, we share with Christ in his death, with his burial, with his resurrection, and also his enthronement. We share Christ's life. We share his sufferings. Paul talked about this when he said about knowing Christ. He wanted to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Because Christ suffered, guess what? We're going to suffer. But we don't suffer alone because Christ himself suffered. He's endured the sufferings that we already have. So when we suffer, we suffer with him. And when we reign, we will reign with him. So the Christian life is that we're raised up in Christ. So the application of this is that in becoming a Christian and being saved, people have been moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. We're, we're not in the same kingdom anymore. We've exchanged addresses. Because we share this with Christ, we share in Christ's victory over the powers of Satan. We continue to endure the hard circumstances of this world. Why? Because Christ reigns victorious because he rose from the dead. Our focus as Christians should always be on the victory that has already been obtained for us. Being in Christ. Christ is enthroned, so we are enthroned with him. Christ has been raised, so we are raised with him. Christ defeated death, so we have no reason to fear death. He raised us up. And what else did he do? Principle number three. He seated us together in Christ. So it says here. And seated us with him. In the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. This is the present position for the Christian. This is a right now. Position for us. We have a new residence. We have a new place of living we've changed addresses so to speak that's what we've done we have a new realm of existence we're not like those who dwell on the earth Paul said this in Philippians 3 and 20 this is what Paul said man this is so good I just like those first words 
Philippians 3 and 20. Look at it. Just right quick. Just turn forward one book in your Bible. That simple first phrase. Remember, we've changed residences as believers. Philippians 3 and 20. Again, we're talking about being seated together with Christ. And the fact that we have a new arena of existence. We have a new place for living. Paul says here what? Our citizenship is where? In heaven. For which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can continue reading this for encouragement. Who would transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Guess what? We're not citizens of this earth. Now in a physical sense, yes, but that's not going to ultimately matter. I'm a citizen of the, of the United States of America. But this earth is not my home. And you believer, this earth is not your home. Your citizenship is where? In heaven. When God saves us, but God, when God sees us with Christ in the heavenly places, guess what? He changes our address. He changes our residence. We have to put a change of address form in because we have a different address now. Our citizenship is in heaven. As I always say, this earth, life on this earth, is the best that it gets for unbelievers. This earth is the best that it gets. It's not the best for us. Our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. But we're going to be with Christ in the heavenly places, in the eternal city that has the glory of God as it's light, where we're going to be, as this old, old saint scene, walking on streets paved with gold. We're going to be with Christ forever, in eternity, for all eternity, entering into the joy of the Lord. You're not going to get this on this earth, right? We have temporary fleeting moments of happiness. We do. I walked outside this morning and said, man, this is a beautiful day out here, Lord. It felt great. But I know like in three weeks or so, I'm going to walk out and open the door and say, man, it's hot out there. It's like you, you feel the heat before you even open the door. <laughs> you know, as soon as you walk outside, that, that southern humidity, humidity, you know, you have to run to your car because you're going to be so hot. You want to turn the air on real, 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 real quick. But this earth is the best that it gets for the world. They might as well eat and drink and be married for tomorrow we die. They might as well just enjoy it, live it up right now, have one big party, because this is the best that it's going to get for them. For us, we despair of this earth. We despair of this body. We want to be with the Lord. Some of y'all may not know Timothy Keller uh, he was a popular Presbyterian pastor who had pastored a church in New York. Uh, he wrote some good books. I have a few of them. Uh, he wrote a good book on idolatry called Counterfeit Gods that I taught when we was at our other location when we first started as a church. Uh, he, he died of uh, pancreatic cancer 
I think Thursday or Friday. Um, but one of his last sentiments that he expressed to his family was he was ready to go home. He went to my home to his house. He was ready to go home. That is the longing heart of every, well, I'll say this, that should be the longing heart of every believer. Our longing to be with the Lord. Our longing to see Christ. Our longing to forsake this earthly home and go to that place that he has prepared for us. That where he is, we will be there too. Like he comforted his disciples with when he told them in John 13 chapter, I'm going to go away. And they were sad and they were in despair. And Christ told them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He says, if, 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 if I'm not able to go, then I won't be able to come back. He comforted them, them with the fact that he was preparing a place. He was telling the disciples, this earth is not it. I'm going to prepare a place for you, saint. And that place is already prepared. They're not doing renovations up there. It's already been built. It already has its foundations. The mansions with many rooms are already there. And you already have saints dwelling up there. Our heart should be longing to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places in him. That's what God does in our heart when he saves us. He switches our affections. Our affections are no longer for this world. That don't mean that we don't work. That don't mean that we're productive. That don't mean that we don't marry and have children, be our families, whatever the case may be, serve others. That, that don't mean that we don't do that. But we do that knowing that this is not it, that all this work is going to burn up. That people are going to fight over your property. People are going to throw your belongings in those big dumpsters that you see outside of houses that have been empty for a long time. As Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, you want a sober look at how futile all these worldly riches are? Read the book of Ecclesiastes. It will sober you. One man works all his life to accumulate all this, and then the next man, the sons or whatever, come along and squander it all. Why? Because everything on this earth is temporary. So when Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, we eagerly await for our Savior. That is the heart cry of every believer. So with that being said, in the context of this text here, God, when he saved us, he seated us with Christ in heavenly places. And that's why our heart longs for heaven. That's why our heart longs for that, because we are seated with Christ. And we don't sit in the heavenly places with Christ, at least not yet, but we have those heavenly places in him. And since our life and our identity is in Christ, as he sits in the heavenly places, so do we. That's what Paul means by that. This is the already but not yet. We are in Christ. As Christ is in heaven, it is as, it is as if we are there too, in other words. Theologian R. Scott Clark said, 
And now we sit in heavenly places. We have a right to the kingdom of God, anticipate this glory, and are indescribably happy in the possession of this salvation and in our fellowship with Christ Jesus. Grant Osborne said, Our position in him is one of present as well as future victory. The concept of sitting down with Christ meant reigning with him. Jesus is the King of Kings sitting on the throne of God. I'm sorry, sitting on the throne of God the Father, and believers are now co reigning with Christ. As Christ is up there reigning, we're reigning with him on this earth. That is where our identity is as believers. We're reigning with Christ on this earth. And that is such a glorious encouragement to us as believers now application here this is something that I was thinking about this morning I had to type this out perhaps this may be some of us most Christians do not feel that this is true of us day to day most of us don't feel that way We all continue to struggle in this world. We find life hard. Sometimes we can find being a Christian very hard. We don't easily imagine that we are with Christ in the heavenly realms. Do we? We don't always imagine that. When we have those back pains. When we have those troubles with things in this life with work but I want this scripture to encourage you right here Colossians 3 1 through 3 helps us understand this this is what Paul said now this in the context of being seated with him in the heavenly realms heavenly places in Christ Jesus this is what Paul says in Colossians 3 verses 1 through 3 and this is the application of this of this principle If you want to turn to it, that's fine. But look at what the Lord tells us here. Remember, most Christians don't feel this is true day to day. Because of our struggles. This is what Paul says here. Colossians 3. Since then, you have been what? Raised with Christ. Set your heart where? On things above. Where Christ is. Where is Christ? Seated at the right hand of God. Thank you, Jesus. Set your mind on things above. Not on earthly things. For you died. What did you die to? The world. The flesh. And the devil. You're no longer dead in your trespasses and sin because God made you what? Alive. For you died and your life is now hidden with who? Christ in God. That is your identity. When you go through your hard days, when you go through your 
troubles and your toils and your frustrations. That does not change the fact that you have been raised with Christ. And what we ought to do is to set our hearts on things above where Christ is. What's the song we sing? Turn your eyes where? Upon Jesus. Look full on his wonderful face. And what? The things of earth will go strangely dim. We're with Christ. We look to Christ because we are with him. We set our affections. Our affections are not for this earth. We set our heart, our affections on things above, on heavenly things. We always have a heavenly view. Again, that doesn't lead us and paralyze us to not doing anything on this earth. That's not what that means. That's falling all the way into the wrong ditch. What it means is, yes, we work on this earth. Again, we build on this earth. God placed us here to be stewards of this earth, to work, to be productive, to not be lazy. But as we do that, we do that knowing that one, we're going to receive a reward from the Lord as our inheritance, as Paul talks about later in Colossians 3. But not only that, but we know that this earth is not it, that I'm toiling for something better and something greater and something more glorious. And that is I'm going to be with Christ one day that my life is hidden in Christ in God with Christ in God. And because of that, I set my mind on things above, not on earthly things, not on earthly philosophies, not on earthly worldviews. Because those things always lead to despair. They always lead to emptiness. They always lead to misery. If I had a loudspeaker that everybody could hear, I would say the same thing every day. And that is this. It's not working. <laughs> the world's way is not working. It is not going to work. It never can work. As I always say, when you try to build a world, why at the same time denying the God who created it, it can't work because it won't work. It can't work. You're trying to build a world. You have people trying to build a world on this earth while denying the God who made this world. Friends, it can't work because it won't work. We're seated together with Christ. That's where our identity is. You will find that nowhere else. Excuse me. The only true community is the Christian community. Last principle here. God demonstrated his grace and kindness to us in Christ. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in whom in Christ Jesus 
In the future, God will continue to show his, the exceeding riches of his grace. That's what it means by in the ages to come. God will never stop dealing with us on the basis of grace as believers. He will never stop dealing with us like that. He will forever to continue to unfold his riches to us throughout all eternity. It is something that will always be. God never stops being God. He will always bestow his grace upon us as believers. Always. Charles Spurgeon said this about this verse. This is so good. He said, from this verse, it is clear that Paul fully expected the gospel of the grace of God to be preached in the ages to come. He had no notion of a temporary gospel to develop into a better, but he was assured that the same gospel would be preached to the end of the age. Not nor this alone, for as I take it, he looked to the per, uh, perpetuity of the gospel, not only through the ages which have already lapsed since the first advent of our blessed Lord, but throughout the ages after he shall have come a second time. Eternity itself will not improve upon the gospel. So what Spurgeon was saying here was that this that Paul was saying in the ages to come is for all the ages. The gospel message is always true. The gospel message is always the same. The same gospel that God made us alive is to be preached throughout all the ages until the Lord comes back. It does not change. And as he said, eternity can't improve upon it. Yeah, many people now trying to improve upon the gospel, trying to change the gospel to make it more palatable uh, to the world, to make it more easy for the world to understand. No, it doesn't need to be made more palatable. We don't need to water down the gospel. When we water down the gospel, it becomes no gospel at all. It loses its effect. When you water down the gospel to, well, you know, you, you're, you're a pretty good person. You're okay as you are. You're all right. You're okay. It's nothing wrong with you. It's society. It's your neighborhood. It's your environment. You didn't get enough hugs growing up. They didn't treat you right. You didn't deserve that. That's the world's gospel. The world's gospel is all about uh, not assigning blame to man. Trying to free man from his more agency. But the gospel says. You are a sinner. You are wretched. You are a rebel against God. And you are deserving of his wrath. And you are to fall on the mercy of God. And when you call on the Lord. Guess what? He will save you. Because he is mighty to save. He is gracious to save. It is God who makes you alive. As we've been reading these last couple of weeks the gospel message is that they are spiritually dead and that they don't have the ability to save themselves so that is the message that we ought to give it doesn't change 
Spurgeon again says about this verse, when all the saints shall be gathered home, they shall still talk and speak of the wonders of Jehovah's love in Christ Jesus. And in the golden streets, they shall stand up and tell what the Lord has done for them to listening to crowds of angels and principalities and powers. Amen. I love this. This is in the ages to come, the exceeding riches of his grace. Guess what? We're always going to be talking about the riches of God's grace, not just here, but also in heaven. But you know what? We should talk about the riches of God's grace here as believers. We should never be ashamed to talk about the riches of God's grace that he has bestowed upon us. And then guess what? Unbelievers can have that same grace. If they start rejecting God and believe in the Lord Jesus, guess what? They can share in the same joy that we have. We can always sing of the grace of God and the goodness of God. One way to see the greatness of the grace of God is to see how he begs man to receive it. Think about this. When you offer a gift to somebody and, and they refuse it, <laughs> do we say, oh, no, take it, please? That's what we often do, right? We're more likely to allow them to refuse and leave them alone. If, if you offer somebody a gift and they say, no, I don't want it. So we say, okay, well, I give it to somebody else. God doesn't do that with us. Even when we refuse his mercy, he reaches into his storehouse of grace and persists with us. He calls us unto himself. Those who are his elect, he calls us and he keeps calling. Every sinner, and I say this all the time, every sinner hears that call to repent. They always do. They always will. That's why God uh, in, in Hebrews, reflecting back to the Old Testament, the day that you hear my voice, harden not your hearts. Unbelievers right now are hearing God's voice to turn to me, to repent. God is a preaching God. He is always preaching. Calm. Always preaching calm. He provides all this evidence of his existence. Paul talks about this in Romans 1. Man can't deny that there is a God. Why? Because things that are seen are attributed to the fact that God exists. God is always sending the gospel message out to come to him. But what is man doing? What is sinful man doing? He's rejecting that call. And every time a person rejects that call, their heart gets hardened even more. They're neglecting, as the writer said, how can you neglect so great a salvation? So that's what we mean by God is, is he reaches into us to our of grace. He, 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 he's persisting. He's persistently proclaiming that gospel. Now he's not begging like some little kids. Oh, pretty please. No, he's not begging like that. When I say that, it means he's, he's constantly speaking to the sinner's consciousness. And what does the sinner do? He says, 
in his heart, no. But God is still going to call. Because on that great day when they stand before him, guess what? They will be without excuse. You know, to answer the question where people ask sometimes, <laughs> what about a tribe out in the middle of the Amazon that's never heard the gospel? They have heard the gospel. They see the gospel. They see the evidences of God. God is impressed on every single heart. Everyone knows that God exists. Everyone knows that there is a God. No matter whether they live in the most remote jungle out in the middle of the Amazon. But they still know that there is a God. And God calls to them also. He does. The riches of God's grace can be experienced by them. So in light of God's gracious saving work, we as believers, we're not to point men and women to ourselves. We point them to God. We point them to the cross. We point them to come to Jesus and be saved. Come to Jesus, bow down and worship him as both your Lord and your Savior. We don't point them to ourselves. Because after all, God lavishes his mercy on rebels to serve as a demonstration of his grace for all ages to come. After all, we were rebels, but God, guess what? He lavished his mercy on us. By grace, we are saved. God had mercy on us and he showed his grace. And guess what? He can still do that and he does still do that. God is still saving souls. He's still saving souls. Until he comes back, he's still saving souls. Now, when he comes back, there's judgment. So that's why we pray for our, our unbelieving family members, unbelieving loved ones, unbelieving co-workers. That when they hear that voice, that they harden out their hearts but that they come to Christ and be saved. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you made us alive together with Christ, that you raised us up with him, and that you seated us with him in the heavenly places to demonstrate your glory. Lord, help us as believers with our identity. Many times as Christians, we can have an identity crisis, not knowing who we are in you and what we have in you. Lord, we ask you to forgive us for that. Lord, help us to see what it means to be in you, to have what we have in you and because of you. Lord, help us to always look to you, to look to the heavens, to turn our eyes upon Jesus. And Lord, we pray for our unsaved family members, our unsaved loved ones friends, co-workers. Lord, that you, when you call to them to be saved, that they not harden their hearts, but that they bow the knee, come to you, and be saved. Thank you, Lord, for your glorious grace in saving us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.